chapter 18, verse 1, to chapter 19, verse 29. Starting from chapter 18. Then be that the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you hunt for words? Consider, and then we will speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in your anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you, or the rock be removed out of its place? Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. His strong steps are shortened, and his own schemes throw him down. For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel, a snare lays hold of him. A rope is hidden for him in the ground, a trap for him in the path. Terrors frighten on him, frighten him on every side, and chase him at his heels. His strength is famished, and calamity is ready for his stumbling. It consumes the parts of his skin, the firstborn of death consumes his limbs. He is torn from the tent in which he trusted, and is brought to the king of terrors. In his tent dwells that which is none of his. Sulphur is scattered over his habitation. His roots dry up beneath, and his branches wither above. His memory perishes from the earth, and he has no name in the street. He is thrust from light into darkness and driven out of the world. He has no posterity or progeny among his people and no survivor where he used to live. They of the West are appalled at his day, and horror seizes them of the East. Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone, and my hope has he pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together, they have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp round my tent. He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me, my close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, 
and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last, and at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say how we will pursue him, and the root of the matter is found in him, be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. Chapter 25, verse 1, to chapter 26, verse 4. Starting at 25. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in his high heaven. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not arise? How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of women be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less a man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm? Then Job answered and said, how you have helped him who has no power, how you have saved the arm that has no strength, how you have counseled him who has no wisdom and plentifully declared sound knowledge. With whose help have you uttered words and whose breath has come out from you? Thank you both very much for reading. Um, let me add my welcome to Wills. It's great to be able to gather and a particular welcome if you're visiting for the bank holiday. Uh, we have a handout inside the sheet you were given by the door, and you might find that helpful, except for where it mentions James 5, which we won't have time for today. Some of you know that I live just around the corner from Mile End Cemetery Park. Uh, like any cemetery, it's filled with uh, graves, uh, gravestones, expressing everything from deep trust in the Lord Jesus through to slightly more vague, sentimental, wishful thinking. It's quite interesting. If ever you've gone around there during lockdown, I was around there quite a lot because I couldn't go very far uh, and occasionally would have a look at the gravestones and see what they said. Yesterday, I happened to be walking through the cemetery and one particular tombstone stood out to me, uh, that of Mary Ann Giles, who died at the age of 83 on the 27th of June, 1883. Not much that's particularly noteworthy about that, uh, but just beneath her date of death, where there would normally be some sort of verse or a prayer, words to console mourners who come to look at uh, the gravestone. There was nothing but a few stray letters, almost just a gap. The last 140 years have slowly worn away what was written there, and now you just can't make out what was written. As though the sands of time have left us with a question, what would you put there? if you had been there back when Mary Ann Giles was buried. Uh, not, would you put on, not what would you put on your tombstone, but how would you seek to comfort mourners who come to her grave? 
How would you console yourself in grief? Some people don't know what to say. Other people will simply assert, you'll get through this. Still others point to the goodness of God. The Christian writer C.S. Lewis heard all of those things when he was coming to terms with the death of his wife, but he struggled to find comfort in them. In his book, A Grief Observed, he writes, what do people mean when they say, I'm not afraid of God because I know that he's good? Have they never been to a dentist? Apologies to any dentists here. It's a slightly light-hearted comment, but it, 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 there's a serious question behind it. How do you comfort somebody in the midst of grief? How do you console yourself? What is the right, wise response to suffering? And that's the question that we were confronted with as we started looking at the book of Job just this last week, starting our series a week ago. And we were introduced to the man who gave the book its name, Job, a blameless and upright man who feared God and turned away from evil. Job was a good man, but a man who at the same time experienced excruciating suffering. He was the subject of an extraordinary conversation in heaven between the Lord and the devil, Satan. And the outcome was the loss of Job's livelihood, his possessions, his family, even his health. Job was a righteous man who suffered greatly. And we saw his response last week, jaw-dropping faith. He said last week, at 1 verse 10, I think it is, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, someone who looked to the goodness of God. But anyone who's read the rest of Job will know that he still struggled. From chapter 3 onwards, Job expresses the anguish of someone in the midst of the tension between God's good character and suffering in a broken world. He's wrestling with the reality of God who is good and the experience of a world that is so often bad. Someone who knows God to be good, but who struggles to be comforted. How would you comfort Job? How would you console yourself if you were him? And of course, we don't just need to imagine all of this. A Job is not a distant story with no relevance to us. What is the right, wise response to suffering? Uh, we're spending this evening in a section which explores that wrestling, chapters 3 to 26, which, as Will said, was quite a large thing to bite off, um, quite a big chunk for us to work our way through. You'll see on the right-hand side of the handouts that Job has been very carefully structured, bracketed by narrative sections at the beginning and the end, and then in between a series of poems. So I certainly... Um, Stuck, as in I, I needed to follow the structure that we've been given here, and the structure demanded that we look at these 24 chapters, uh, three cycles of Job interacting with his friends, which we were looking at today. Uh, next week, we'll look at Job's summary, a uh, speech which concludes with the phrase, the words of Job are ended, and then in our last sermon, we'll look at the baffling Elihu and the speeches of the Lord himself. Uh, but we've come to this big chunk of 24 chapters of poetry in which we find the attempts of Job and his friends to make sense of suffering. Uh, we are not going to cover everything, of course not. Uh, there is a danger that we would drown in that much poetry. But especially because it is so unfamiliar, I want not just to focus on the chapters that have been read, but to give us a, a little bit of a flavor of what's going on in the whole so that we can enjoy it for ourselves. I think of it a little bit like a swimming lesson. 
This is going to be an illustration that doesn't work, but we'll try it. As some of us might be quite nervous swimmers, we're not keen on biblical poetry, and so we don't venture into that sort of terrain very often. But this evening, we're going to spend a bit of time paddling with some armbands on, hopefully to give us confidence to come back to poetry in the future. But more than that, we're looking at the book of Job in particular, which might be unfamiliar waters. And so my hope is to whet our appetite, to give us a, a sense of the shape of the lake and maybe some of its notable features. This sermon won't be a substitute for getting into the text. They're, they're headings. They're not a shortcut to hearing the text itself. But it might lay enough groundwork to help us navigate the book on our own, even if you don't catch everything that I say in these next 20 minutes or so. And my hope is that you will be helped to come back to this extraordinary book without armbands on and to dive into its deep waters. So we've got two points to help us on our way. There on the handouts. Firstly, worldly tidiness is miserable comfort. Or perhaps better, worldly wisdom is miserable comfort. Back at the end of chapter two, we were, if you've read it during the week, you'll have seen us introduced to Job's three friends. Two verse 11 says, when Job's three friends heard of all the evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Narmathite. Now, I don't really have a clue where most of those places are. I'm sure that lots of us don't. You can ask me about it later. I've got some suggestions, but it's not worth the time. And suppose simply, these are three men of the world. They don't belong to the people of Israel, although they might be second cousins, third cousins, distant cousins of Israel, but they're men of the world are coming offering worldly wisdom. Uh, Last week, I said this book is about how to respond to suffering and where to find wisdom in the storm. And here, at the end of chapter two, we have three men entering the stage, coming to offer the wisdom of the world. As I've said, we don't have time to look at all they say, but we get a good flavor of it in that chapter 18 that was read for us. By the time we get to chapter 18, uh, please do turn there uh, while I'm introducing it. But while, uh, by the time we get to chapter 18, uh, it's clear that Job and his friends are coming to the problem of suffering with very different perspectives. The friends convinced that Job is suffering because he is guilty. Job refusing to accept their explanation and maintaining his innocence. And so Bildad begins, 18, uh, verse 2 on page 513, How long will you hunt for words? Consider and then we'll speak. Why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? In other words, Job, why won't you listen to our excellent, excellent wisdom? Why is the stuff that we want to say to you considered no more beneficial than the mooing of some cows? Well, you might ask, Bildad. Verse 4, you who tear yourself in your anger... Shall the earth be forsaken for you, or the rock be removed out of its place? A builder says, do you think, Job, that you are so much the center of the universe that the whole world should turn around you? Now, the universe has a moral order, Job, and you can't mess with it. Stop claiming that you're an innocent sufferer. You're trying to defy the moral fabric of reality. Shall the rock be removed out of its place? Verse 5, indeed, the light of the wicked is put out. Uh, let me paint a picture of what the wicked face, Job, and you'll see that you can recognize it. Uh, slowly, he builds up a picture which looks remarkably like hell. Uh, verses five and six, oppressive darkness which no torch can break into. 
And wherever the wicked stumbles through this overbearing blackness, verse 9, a trap seizes him by the heel. A snare lays hold of him. Verse 11, terrors frighten him on every side and chase him at his heels. Verse 14, he's torn from the tent in which he trusted and is brought to the king of terrors. You can picture the wicked cowering in the center of this dark scene, looking with horror at all of the terrors around him. If you're a Harry Potter fan, maybe you're picturing Dementors in there as well. That, says Bildad, is the experience of the wicked. And then his description starts to get remarkably personal. I wonder if you spotted, as Zach was reading, just how Job might hear these. Verse 13, it consumes the parts of the skin. Maybe we're picturing this wicked man with loathsome sores. Verse 15, sulfur is scattered over his habitation as though fire from heaven had come down on the man. Verse 17, his memory perishes from the earth and he has no name in the street. Verse 19, he has no posterity or progeny among his people and no survivor where he used to live. The wicked is forgotten. All his family, all his children have perished. Do you see who Bildad is painting at the center of his scene? Do you see who, Joe, uh, who Bildad is describing in his picture of the wicked? It's Job. Job, the one with loathsome sores, on whose sheep fire had come down, whose children had tragically perished. It's the description of Job in his suffering. And then Bildad concludes, verse 21, such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. It's a striking speech. Striking speech. Not least because mixed in with everything else that's going on, there are some right things there. God will judge the wicked. It's the clear teaching of the whole Bible. Bildad's picture is, as I've said, in many ways, evocative of what the Bible says about hell. All of the friends' speeches, or at least many of them, have those little nuggets of truth hidden away. But of course, the friends are really offering miserable comfort. A miserable, miserable comfort. A miserable for at least two reasons. Firstly, their tone to a man who has just lost his livelihood and his family. Bildad gives him sarcasm and an aggressive insinuation. Elsewhere, his, uh, the, the friends of Job even go as far as to say that he's not even got as bad as he deserves. It's a shocking demonstration of tone-deaf counsel. And we read it with shock, don't we, when we realize what they're saying. But it's not just their tone. And maybe more importantly, they are too tidy in their theology. Too tidy. Every speech of the friends is based on the principle that you reap what you sow. The fact that Job is suffering, they are saying, must be because he's done something wrong. Now, you can see it in everything that the friends say. And that principle of you reap what you sow, it is sometimes true. In the summer, we're looking at the book of Proverbs. We'll see that principle coming through, I think. But Job's friends hold on to it so tightly, so rigidly, that they're unwilling to acknowledge a universe where anything else works. And to them, to acknowledge the idea that anything else could be true is to remove the rock from its place, 
It is the earth being forsaken. Their theology is too tidy. Too tidy to make room for Satan. To make space for the heavenly conversation that we witnessed in chapters 1 and 2 last week. Satan never even gets the slightest mention in the friends' speeches. God is held uniquely responsible for all that went on. And their theology is too tidy to make room for the future. A God's execution of justice in their minds is immediate, or maybe just around the corner. You reap what you sow, they are saying, and God makes sure of it now. Christopher Ash, uh, who I mentioned last week, has written really helpfully on this. Uh, his commentary describes them as the moral equivalent of the very house-proud person who will not abide things being out of place. Uh, everything has its place, and everything is in its place. They cling unwaveringly to this principle of you reap what you sow. And Job, Christopher says, is like a rude guest who comes in and wants to trash the place. Now that sort of zeal for tidiness can be quite annoying when it's found in a flatmate. I shall mention no names. But it is horrific, isn't it? It's horrific to read in the Friends of Job. It's no wonder that Job describes them as worthless physicians in chapter 13. Or in chapter 16, he calls them miserable comforters. As we listen to the friends, we have to agree. Some people say you spend the book kind of nodding along to the friends, and then you get to the end and you get this big surprise. Oh, they were wrong all along. But if we're paying attention at... I'm sorry. If we're paying attention at the beginning, then we know that Job was in the right We know that he was upright and blameless and feared God. And so the moment the friends open their mouths, we know that they're in the wrong. But of course, the book of Job isn't just telling us that they're in the wrong. It's it's here to help us feel their error. That poetry is here to evoke in us horror, shock at what they're saying. And we're not just seeing that they're wrong, we're seeing that they are miserable comforters. We get chapters and chapters of their terrible advice in extended poetry to make us hate it. So that when we are confronted with it, when we hear it in the world, we're ready to resist it. And we do hear it in the world, don't we? It's there in so many other religions, in the karma of Buddhism and Hinduism, that your actions will determine the sort of reincarnated life you will get, that your experience now is, in fact, the result of actions in a former life. Sometimes you'll hear it in Islam, as suggestions that the suffering someone experiences is divine retribution for some wrong they have done. Alas, sometimes you'll hear it in Christian circles. There's a form of it in the prosperity gospel, the idea that those with enough faith will have healthy and wealthy lives. If you want something from God, name it and claim it. Faith has the power to make it happen. And if you're experiencing hardship, well, it's because you haven't had enough faith. You reap what you sow. So a family member gets sick with a terminal diagnosis and you pray for healing. After a series of unsuccessful trips to the hospital, you pray all the more zealously for God to act. And when, in the end, your family member dies, the prosperity gospel says that you didn't pray hard enough. You didn't pray with enough faith. Even that it's your fault that they died. You reap what you sow. It's tidy. It's theologically neat. 
but it's wrong. It's miserable comfort. I think lots of people in our culture have abandoned the traditional wisdom of ancient religions and turned instead to lifestyle gurus and Instagram influencers to learn their moral philosophy. And there's no end to suggestions of where you might find worldly wisdom. And they might not offer the same tidiness as Job's friends, but they still all fall apart when tested in the crucible of suffering. And when they need to provide answers to the problems of life, they don't work. They are still miserable comforters. Uh, that was the, Austra- uh, the observation of the Australian writer Wendy Seifert. Um, she's not a Christian. She's got no interest in providing illustrations for Christian talks, but she does. And her book, The Sunny Nihilist, uh, provides yet more condemnation of worldly wisdom. Uh, she writes... During the COVID-19 crisis, many observed how the public stomach turned against the influencers, wellness gurus, and lifestyle celebrities we'd been devotedly following. When faced with such a stark physical reality, when faced with suffering, the dreams they offered of shiny skin, open hearts, and elevated auras began to feel vapid. Unfortunately, Wendy Seifert's sunny nihilism takes vapid emptiness to a whole new level. But the point is the same. In the eye of the storm, worldly wisdom is miserable comfort. We get chapter after painful chapter of it to hammer it home. And yet, as we listen to the weaknesses of these miserable comforters, ancient and new, well, we're driven just a little bit closer to the right approach, which is point two on the handouts. Undeniable mystery should drive us to God. At this section of Job, we alternate between the friends and Job. And as we alternate, we come to see that Job is onto something that the friends have missed. While the friends are tonally off and theologically too tidy, Job holds on to tension. It doesn't make sense, he seems to keep saying again and again. I think we had a glimpse of that in our reading, Job chapter 19. If you've still got it, it's page 513. He starts with this complaint against his miserable comforters. Verse 2, how long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? But verse 5, if indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, that is, if you're determined to say that this suffering is a sign that I am being judged by God, well then verse 6, know that God has put me in the wrong. In other words, if my suffering is because of a judgment of God, then know that God has perverted justice. He's judged me wrongly. He's put me in the wrong camp. Job is convinced of his innocence, and yet to him, God has already passed sentence. Verse 9. Verse 9, God has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. Indeed, God seems to have marshaled a whole army against him. Verse 12, his troops come on together. They've cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. Job pictures himself as the victim of a siege, like Mariupol in eastern Ukraine, currently under the siege of the Russian forces. And Job casts God as Putin, the oppressive head of the invading army. And at the center of the image, Job is the vulnerable underdog, cowering, crouching in nothing but a tent. 
Uh, verses 13 to 20, we don't have time for them. They explore uh, Job's lonely isolation. Even his closest friends, verse 19, uh, they abhor him, uh, and those whom he loves have turned against him. And verse 21, he says, Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Such an upsetting cry. And if we were paying attention last week, we'll know that it's wrong. Job wasn't afflicted by the hand of God. Check out chapters one and two later, and you'll see very clearly that the Lord gives Satan permission. He's in your hand, says the Lord. Satan's hand did it, but Job doesn't know that. From his perspective, it's the hand of the Lord that struck him, and it hurts, and he's confused. It doesn't make sense. And there's a lot there in chapter 19, yet more that we haven't even looked at. And not everything that Job says is right. He accuses God of perverting justice. He says, God has put me in the wrong. He's wrong in verse 12 to cast God as Putin. As we said, he's wrong in verse 21 to say the hand of the Lord has touched him. In chapter 42, spoiler alert for a couple of weeks' time, Job is going to have to repent. And yet at the end of the book, God's verdict will be that the friends have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. That is to say, God says that Job gets something right that the servants get wrong. Let me suggest that it's that Job, he recognizes the tension. He acknowledges the mystery. Where the friends are confident they've got it all sorted, Job is happy to, to talk about the things that don't seem to go together. And the fact that, yes, God is just and the wicked get punished, and yet so often the wicked seem to get away with it. That God seems to be this wonderful God, a good God, a just God, and yet he seems to be afflicting me. If I can put it this way, what Job gets right is his wrestling. Wrestling is right. It's not something you expected me to say, a person who's probably least likely to have wrestled in this whole building. But wrestling is right. It's what the miserable comforters taught us with their dreadful tidiness. And it is what Job teaches us. His wrestling is right. But crucially, within all that wrestling, within all the mystery, Job leans towards God. It doesn't ultimately drive him away from the Lord's, but causes him to lean towards God in hope. That's what we see at the end of chapter 19. Let me read from verse 23. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. Job is eager for vindication. Even if he's about to die, he wants his defense to be written into his tombstone so that people one day will see that he was right. And yet you can see where he expects his vindication really to come from. Verse 25. I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. A redeemer in the Old Testament was someone who stood up for your cause. And Job is convinced that he has an always living redeemer who will fight for him. And Christopher Ashe paraphrases verse 25 like this. He says, better than a fading tombstone inscribed with my vindication, there will be an eternally living vindicator standing on my grave, attesting my genuineness 
and right relationship with God. And people debate the identity of the Redeemer, but Christopher's right when he says the Redeemer here can be none other than God himself, the living God who often in the Old Testament stands as the Redeemer of his people. There's no alternative candidates who can stand for Job as an equal with God. No one of lower status than God will suffice. Of course, we know the identity of that Redeemer all the more truly, don't we? Jesus Christ, God the Son. To say, my Redeemer lives now, it's an even greater statement for us who are Christians. But even for Job, he was able to hope in God as his Redeemer. In spite of all his suffering, in spite of all his grief, in spite of all the mystery, he clings to what he does know about God and he leans in. I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. It's not a steady journey for Job. He goes up and down. Certainly he appears to be more faithful at some points than at others. But I think it's that realistic wrestling faith that makes him such a good example for us. It's one of the reasons why I think the book of Job is so brilliant. Uh, With lots of books on suffering, we essentially get told, don't read this if you're in the middle of suffering at the moment. Uh, Don Carson's brilliant book, How Long, O Lord, starts with a foreword where he says, this is not the sort of book I would give to somebody who is suffering inconsolable grief. Get get it as preventative medicine. Get your head straight on it now uh, for when you face suffering, but don't read this if you're in the midst of it. But Job, Job is the book to read when you're in the midst of it. Sure, you can also use it for preventative medicine. But Job's winding, wavering, anguished faith gives voice to those of us who are suffering. It says, there's mystery. I don't know. I don't understand. It refuses to square the circle. But at the same time, it patiently clings to hope. I know that my Redeemer lives. In C.S. Lewis's A Grief Observed, we see a similar wavering faith. At moments, it looks like Lewis in his grief is about to give up. And then at other moments, he seems to return to profound Christian clarity. I was reading it this week. I read it in this massive version because it made it look like a big, hefty book. It's actually a tiny bit just at the end. Very short and easy reads. And I was struck by the way that C.S. Lewis modeled this same recognition of mystery and a Job-like patient hope. One point he writes this, heaven will solve our problems, but not, I think, by showing us subtle reconciliations between all our apparently contradictory notions. The notions will all be knocked from under our feet. We shall see that there never was any problem. See the humility of what he's saying there? I will get a solution in the end. At the last, heaven will solve all our problems. And maybe we'll realize that we hadn't seen as clearly as God does. It's an awareness of undeniable mystery. We don't know, and yet are clinging to hope. Mary Ann Giles died in 1883, and her grave is in Cemetery Park, just off the main path as you're walking through. And the words of comfort to her mourners have been rubbed away over time, as if the sands of time are saying to us, what would you put here? If you had been there, how do you seek to comfort the bereaved family? How do you console yourself in grief? When these sorts of questions come up, it can can be tempting 
tempting to say something theologically neat, tempting to try and square the circle. But where worldly wisdom offers neat answers now, and Job shows us a better course, he acknowledges the tension, the mystery, and in the midst of it all, he patiently clings to hope in the Lord. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. It wasn't a theologically neat solution. It says things are going to get sorted out in the end, but at the moment I'm still, still struggling. And even while some of the mystery now is solved, we know who the Redeemer is, and we've got his name. And we can trust in the Lord Jesus as our Redeemer, who stands and intercedes on our behalf. But it is still, as we say that sentence, isn't it an admission of mystery, of tension, of much that we don't know yet? And through it all, clinging to hope in the Lord Jesus. Mary Ann Giles died in 1883 and her grave is in Cemetery Park and the words of her mourners have been rubbed away over time. But recorded just below Mary Ann is the death of her brother, George Giles, who died four years later on the 29th of June, 1887. Again, his date of death is followed by some words of comfort and again, they've been worn down over time. But in his case, you can still make out what it says. They're those words of Job. I know that my Redeemer liveth. Turns out that just as Job wished, his words have been engraved in a tombstone. Why don't we pray that they be engraved on our hearts? Our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we live in a world that we don't understand a world in which we are so tempted to offer neat answers, to, to go further than you tell us and to try and square circles and to make assumptions. And we acknowledge that you are a God who knows all. And so we pray that you would help us to be content with mystery and to understand that there are some things that we don't know. But we pray those things we do know would help us to cling to you and we pray that each and every one of us might have engraved on our hearts and ready in our minds great confidence in our Redeemer who lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.